All right, welcome back to yet another episode. Hey, all you crazy sci-fi and fantasy fans, it's time for your daily dose of shenanigans over here at the Blasters and Blades podcast. Just three nerdy veterans geeking out over our science fiction passions and fantastical fantasies. A place where magic is king, the sky is the limit, and space is the place we put the fun in dysfunction. So without further ado, we're going to let our guest, she's a returning um, alumnus of the show, alumni, right. alumnus, I don't know if that's gendered right. or not, but she's been on the show before, we'll link that episode too. But it's been no oh, almost about, 300 uh, episodes ago. It's been about a year. It feels like it's been forever. Uh, it's been too long, clearly. But uh, can you introduce yourself? Sure. Uh, my name is G.S. Jensen. I am a recovering lawyer turned recovering software developer turned very relieved full-time science fiction writer. I write space opera and epic adventure science fiction with healthy dashes of all of the other subgenres, military sci-fi, cyberpunk, thriller, singularity themes. They're all set in my Amaranth universe. Um, I published my first book, Starshine, in 2014, and my 20th novel, Medusa Falling, basically right now. Um, in my spare time, I'm a geek and a tech nerd and an avid video gamer and an optimistic futurist. And as of two years ago, my husband and I and our two furry little children live in the wilds of Northwest Montana. Nice, nice. So uh, this is something we didn't release last time because she's got real privacy concerns, dear listener. But I'm gonna, I'm gonna blow this one out of the water for you. What you don't know is the GS, the uh, um, of her initials. Her mother had so much faith in her writing abilities, even in utero, that it stands for great sci-fi. You didn't know that, but that's actually what the GS stands for. <laughs> I mean, it's probably hard growing up with that as your name. So I get why you go by initials, but I mean, you, know, you got to love your mom for, for having that much faith. Absolutely. You know, I often have people ask me what the initials stand for, especially at conventions and that type of thing. I'm going to use that from now on. Thank you. Your mother had a lot of faith. I'm just, you know, we're very proud of her because you proved her right. She's like, all those extra English lessons, they were totally worth it. So... The, uh, the next part of the introduction, dear listeners, where I first found them. So I was riding along, minding my own business, casually cruising by the rings of Saturn, as you do, when I accidentally crashed in the back of her Star Destroyer. Oops. I mean, luckily, insurance covered the damages, but she's definitely going to need a new Death Star. So <laughs> we're sorry about that. Look, I mean, who knew you'd hit it in the one spot where everything just would go kaplooey? How's the rebuild coming? Are you getting close to the completion of the replacement yet? Oh, you know, it's funny. My main character in most of my books um, has her own starship. She built her own starship. It is her pride, her joy, her child. She is as possessive of that starship as anyone could ever be for anything. And um, it's, its name is the Sion. And if you were to actually crash into the back of that, the wrath that you would meet from her would be absolutely unparalleled. I can't even tell you. So this is a, this is a pretty tricky origin story here for you. So when you say she built it by hand, how big are we talking? Cause you know, I'm thinking ship builds. I mean, we've got whole shipyards to build one standard size, you know, warship. So are we talking like pleasure cruise kind? Yeah. This is, a, this is a personal craft. She starts off as a space scout and explore. She um, gets hired by corporations, you know, to go find valuable asteroids, valuable planets, you know, uh, other type of crazy things that are out in space that can make them a lot of money. Um, 
And since, especially in my early days, though still now also, but for the first book and the first trilogy, I did an excessive amount of world building planning. Let me just tell you, we, um, we have a little over 100 worlds that have been colonized when the whole series starts, and I gave every single one of them names. Um, I say all of that to tell you that I know the exact dimensions of the ship, um, and it is 45 feet long by 25 feet wide, and it has um, three, yes, three levels. Um, so I think that was about, about 25 or 30 feet tall as well. That is a very cramped ship. <laughs> well, just it's picturing just living in. Off. It's just hard to start off with. So you couldn't have given her like the Millennium Falcon size because at least <laughs> they had some room to move. You know. No, you know. know you but I mean, I guess if you're building it yourself. Yeah, she she got everything <laughs> she wanted on it, and you know, it's mostly scientific instruments and that type of thing. Um, and it's a very comfortable living space. You know, you've got the cockpit, you've got, uh, you know, a couch and a lounge and a little kitchen area on the main floor. And then she's got a bedroom down below. And then down below that is the engineering well that where she accesses all of the uh, components and instruments and all of that kind of stuff. So she's happy with it. So you, you say it's mostly scientific instruments in the beginning. Would yeah. a plasma rifle or I guess plasma cannon count as science? Because, you know, there's science involved in the making of the energy and plasma that you're shooting at things. So that's, that's science, true. right? Well, and, and her asteroid work, sometimes you got to shoot up the asteroids to, you know, find out what's in them. But I said in the beginning, because as the story develops, she definitely adds some guns. We'll just put it that way. For science, of course. For Well, no, um, no, not actually for science any longer, just for shooting things. Okay. I mean, I'm just saying you can shoot things for science and then, you know, just you call it good. I was doing research. Absolutely has. But she does need to upgrade the firepower whenever things get serious. So you mentioned all the world building you did. So what are they doing for food? Because that's a relatively compact ship. So unless she's constantly resupplying, you're not storing a whole lot of long-term food. So are they, does she have some sort of like replicator making food a la Star Trek or... A lot of freeze-dried meals. What what was the planning? Well, uh, she does resupply frequently. Like I say, you know, she goes on these little missions, you know, uh, specified targets and that type of thing. And we have a lot of colonized worlds. So there's a lot of places to stop off. Um, in my world, people still like to cook when they can. Obviously, 300 years from now, we, we can, you know, we can make artificial food. We do make artificial food and that type of thing. Um, but I, th I always felt like it's kind of a very human thing. You know, if you know any chefs or any people who just really love cooking, then it is so important to them. And it's about so much more than, you know, the specific ingredients of the recipes or that type of thing. Um, my cousin loves to cook and she says feeding people makes her happy the act of making the food to feed the people makes her happy. It's a big part of her life. Um, and so I think people who do enjoy it, e even way in the future when they don't have to, they're, they're still going to cook for the enjoyment of it and probably tell themselves that nothing else tastes like the real thing. Um, so for her, it's, it's a combination of that. Of course, there's the free dried foods and that type of thing. Um, funny, you know, confession here straight off the, you know, of um, a weakness or whatever, because, Someone actually brought this up to me recently. I didn't think about 3D printing food whenever I did all of this world building. 
Will we be able to do that 300 years from now? Will we have replicators all of Star Trek? Absolutely. Of course we would. It did not occur to me. I completely blanked on it. And that, you know, that, that was bad of me. Um, I definitely included that. That's a blind spot. It's something that a sci-fi author, you always worry about the blind spots. Um, I like to tell the story about Neuromancer. Yeah, one of the greatest science fiction books ever written. William Gibson predicted the internet and hard drives and artificial intelligence, most of all. He failed to, to conceive of any type of cellular phone technology. The characters in Neuromancer talk to each other on payphones. And if there is one thing that keeps me up at night as a science fiction writer, it is what are the payphones in my books that I didn't see, that I, I you know, wasn't clever enough to conceive of. And one of the payphones in my early books is that um, there's really no replicators, uh, that there's no food replication or that type of thing. See, the great thing about science fiction in the print form is all you have to do is release a prequel to the prequel where you can write, uh, well, this is why we don't have it. And it's outlawed because this act, because insert <laughs> whatever reason you want and you can explain it away because as long as you can explain why you did something, then it's right. not wrong. It just, it's just a different world, right? Absolutely. So, absolutely. Uh, I don't know. There was, there was the great rebellion against 3D printed food because everyone was convinced <laughs> it would steal your soul. I mean, I can imagine when, uh, and they, they cover this some in Star Trek, when you first start getting the teleportation, for instance, because it breaks you down molecularly and then reassembles you on the other side, are you you when you come out on the other side right. or is it another version of you? And those kinds of things are already happening when they're talking about lab-grown meat. So I don't know, as long as you make there's a reason for it, that it's even wrong that you didn't have it in this story. Yeah. Because, I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm not eating that lab-grown stuff. You know, not not any know 50 soon. years from now you're gonna find out it gave you cancer or something right so like i i get yeah. soya green I mean, you was can find a, a reason yeah soya green was a cautionary tale not a how-to guide so someone forgot to tell our tech billionaires who want us like i think zuckerberg and musk are trying to get people on the lab grown stuff yeah uh he's uh, one of zuckerberg, them i just remember I or maybe it was Bezos. Really, yeah bill gates maybe yeah i think it was yeah, maybe. But there was some rich, one of the rich people trying to tell us how to live our lives. And I don't hate rich people. I want to be rich people. So this isn't me throwing shade. But they were like, oh, lab grown meets the future. Eh, I don't know. There's nothing like cooking your, charring your meat over a grill. Exactly. You know, on a hot exactly. summer day. It's, it's a cultural experience as much as it is just nourishment. I think some of it is also almost, I don't know if I buy in totally to the idea of genetic memory, but I mean, there's something I think there that ties back to our primitive nature, like the, the uh, Neanderthal brain that's inside of every one of us. Like, I think there's something about like doing it yourself. Like I can tell you food tastes better when I grew the fruit, the, the vegetables myself. I've made a few soups where everything but the chicken came out of my garden. And I don't know, maybe it's psychosomatic, but I, I thought it tasted better. So, well, I mean, I think there's something to, to that. Yeah, I'll have to take your word for that. Um, whenever we moved to Montana, the property that we bought has a garden on it. And, and embracing all of this more wilderness life, like we're going to be gardeners. We are going to grow not all of our own food, of course, but, you know, we're going to grow our own vegetables. We are absolutely going to do this. It was such an abject failure. We, we are a total failure as gardeners. <laughs> so I'm not sure that I will get to ever have the experience that you did of that. And that's a shame. 
Well, I've only had one year where the garden of the last five I've been gardening. I jokingly call it my victory garden of the one tying back to World War Two, not my actual skills of completion of the gardening. Um, but I've often joked that I have a black thumb. But I had one year where, you know, the carrots just uh, took and the potatoes took. And probably in spite of me, uh, in spite of me, not because of me, and I managed to get just enough for one soup, and that was it. But I have a small; my property is very, very tiny. It's what they call postage lot, so I, I grow everything in buckets for now. Uh, at some point in time, I'll sell enough books and I'll, I'll buy the homestead. But I got to come up with a really cool name for it because if you're going to have a homestead, you got to give it a cool name. Yes. Did you name and, your property? Tell yes. me it was something cool. Okay. <laughs> Um, so in my books at late book 11 or, you know, after book nine, anyway, the two main characters. So along the way, the book four, and then again, sprinkled throughout, they encounter a sentient planet. Um, and there's a whole backstory of that and everything, but, um, they encounter the sentient planet and one of the main characters bonds with the sentient planet. And so at the end uh, of the big finale of the first nine books, um, they move to that planet and build a house. And the name that they gave the planet was Akiso, um, which is a Greek okay. word. And so actually, whenever we moved here, we got a, a frilly you know, a metal plaque made that says Akiso, and that is beside our front door. So. Nice. What does I, it mean? I moved to the place where my main characters live. What can I say? Nice. Nice. What does a kiso mean? Um, it, it, it means sort of everlasting life. Okay. All life. Yes. Okay. I like it. Now, if the planet is sentient, does that mean it feels pain? Yes. It can. So does that mean it hurts when they're cutting down the trees on it to build the house and to, you know, dig the foundation? Like, was that painful for the planet? Yeah, well, and, and they actually do, they do take care to do as little of that as possible. But no, it understands the cycle of life, live, live, live okay. life, death, rebirth. Um, it's all about growing new things and that type of thing. Um, you know, it has storms because it is a planet with a whole ecosystem. So storms happen and lightning strikes trees and, and they break apart and that type of thing. So that's really just part of its life. Okay. Um, do you cover the origin story for that sentient planet? That just fascinates me. I do. Yes. Um, it's. Well, so you're telling me I'm going to have to read nine books to figure it out? Um, Five on nine today. When is that actually finally revealed? Well, um, whenever they discover it, they know something about how it came to be. But the tr the full story of that is does not actually happen until, I believe, book 17. <laughs> so. It's a commitment, but I want answers, so we'll have to dive in. <laughs> but it matters because, you know, what, what, how it actually came to be is obviously related to an important subplot that is going on in the story at that time. So, so have you ever seen um, Stargate Atlantis? Yes. Do you remember the hive ships that the um, oh the Wraith use? I do. They were actually. Um, living ships that sort of grew um, biological. And mm -hmm. every since I watched that when it first came out in the early 2000s, I think, I remember the whole concept of a sentient ship fascinated me. Yes. Now, uh, Andromeda, the series that had the guy that was in Hercules in it, I can't remember the actor's name. 
but he was in the Andromeda TV series. Mm-hmm. Uh, his ship was sentient, but it was because the AI that controlled it was sentient more than the whole ship itself. But the idea of like non-traditional things that are alive, like ships and now planets, that just that's kind of neat idea to play with. Yes, um, I, I am fascinated I guess the, by it as well. And I, I do several different things with that over the course of the books. I guess the fantasy equivalent would be the, uh, was it the continents that are on the backs of like, uh, was it turtles or whatever? You've seen some of the old fantastical art. Oh, I guess that's yes. like the fantasy um, equivalent. Terry, uh, t- um, um, oh, I'm drawing a total blank. And, and I even have stuff related to that. But yes, that, that was a whole series about that. Okay. Well, there's a lot of Terry's that write sci-fi. Fantasy has swords that are alive, that have their own personalities and that yeah. type of thing. So so speaking of uh, being alive, we're going to ask you the religion question because that part, while we're a little more free-flowing than we used to be, will never change. So are you ready for this? I'm going to ask you a different one than you got last time. Okay. Star Wars, Star Trek, or Firefly? You get the classics. And I am going to totally cheat and have an answer for all three of them. I want the world of Star Trek. And in my books, the world is one of relative abundance and most humans trying to be their best selves. So, you know, I grew up on Star Trek. It was probably inspired by that. And so I would love for our future to be the world of Star Trek. Um, But of course, you know, Star Trek can be a little boring, Uh, You know, maybe not when you're on the Enterprise, but for the average ordinary people living on Earth and elsewhere, um, it it can be a bit dull. Star Wars is exciting. It's wild. It's expansive. You got all these different kinds of crazy aliens. It is alive. And that is awesome. I don't want Firefly's world. You know, I mean, mean, that was pretty tough from a lot of a lot of respects. But from a storytelling perspective, Firefly is probably the most compelling one of the three the characters and and the world that it brought to life and and everything like that but uh, i'm not sure that i would want to live in that world it's also because they can never take the sky from me that's why you want to own the sky i actually i have a okay i i have a bumper sticker on my car that says shiny and it's in the font that they used in the series so i obviously i love firefly I just wish they had done more with that universe. They had well, well, so oh, much depth that even does. from... The, the problem is, is if you want to go... If you go back and you just redo it, I mean, you're never going to get it quite... Like, you're never going to have another Mal Cooper. Oh, no, not Mal Cooper. That's an author we know. Uh, oh, <laughs> the captain, Mal, what was his yeah, last his name? His name Malcolm? was Mal, though. Yeah. Yeah. Um, sorry, Mal. The other Mal that I've met actually in person, um, she can just giggle when she hears this. But um, you're not going to get the uh, Nathan Philly, Fillion, Finian? Nathan Fillion, yeah. The actor. Like, if you try to redo it, it's not going to have that same character that he brought to it. So it's going to feel cheap. If you take it X number of years into the future and make a sequel that's like just a time skip to wherever the authors or the authors, wherever the characters are now, I'm not sure all of the actors from that are still alive. Um, which would get in the way. You could think, tell um, stories in that universe, but without the ship, is it still is it still the same universe? I mean, just yeah, like Star it, Trek, can it be really, Star Trek was, without the Enterprise? Yeah, it was the characters and their interactions that really made the show, and that means it was the actors. 
So no, I know Hollywood yeah, I think, is reboot insane right now, but I really hope they don't do that. I think they're out of ideas. They just yeah. need to, you know, okay. Uh, there's that old joke, sobriety killed rock and roll. I think getting rid of the Coke killed uh, Hollywood because those writing <laughs> studios have just never yeah. been the same since all that nose candy from the 80s. Yeah. Um, not that I'm encouraging drug use, people. I'm, I'm being facetious. But like, I, I think it's twofold. One, reboots, are they feel like they're safe. Uh, when you use a property that you already created, you don't have to pay the authors or the creators as much because they're just building an existing. So the royalty shares are in their favor if it's a big hit. So like if you if you write another Marvel and you bring in a brand new character that's a runaway hit and they make trillions off the merchandising, they have to give you a part. They don't want to share that. So, oh, we're just going to tell the 12th version of Superman and it's going to be totally different but the same. Um. So I, I don't know. I, you're right. They would ruin it probably if they brought it back. I think you could get away with um, show the war where the brown coats lost. That could be, um, be or you could just do it in fiction. Get them doing the graphic novels or the the novelizations. Yeah, I mean, because the story did continue in graphic novel form. Did it now? So, yes. So the story is there to be told. Um, obviously, the actors are a bit older. Um, it, it, all of the stars would have to align and that's pretty hard to do in Hollywood these days. So I've been burned once by series that were dropped. They never continued. And they're like, Oh, read the graphic novel. We give you the ending. And then the graphic novel was a cliffhanger too. And I'm like, you sons of biscuit eaters. <laughs> um, I did the Stargate universe. I got hooked. I was one of probably 12 people that liked that series. Uh, the, the TV series. Yeah, I so it. Like, well, the story continues in the, the story continued. Well, it's the least favorite because it was a different formula. So, Target Universe, SP1. Yeah. I liked the greediness. I liked the realism that they actually, like, hey, we don't know where we're going to resupply. Let's strip this body of all the crap we're leaving behind. Right. Um, instead of just, you know, leaving, you know, one more P90 on the floor. Um, but the graphic novel ended on a cliffhanger, too. And I'm like, you promised me an ending. And then it so didn't was, do either, huh? Yikes. No. So I'm a little leery because graphic novels are a huge fiscal investment because they're not cheap when you buy them. So I might have to I might have to preview before I buy and see if they actually <laughs> conclude the story. <laughs> um, did did you did you buy it or read it? No, no, I didn't realize that the story continued in graphic novel form. I, I did I enjoyed the series. I, I wouldn't say that I loved the series enough to go and dive into the larger world of it they didn't well in all of those cases it's fox is where good shows go to die fox entertainment yeah. they this is you know most people don't realize it this is the, the younger listeners this was the land before uh binge watching everything on netflix where your dvr recorded it but what people didn't realize and i've said this before so i won't belabor the point it didn't actually record inner show you want to watch it recorded a time slot so if the news event, if a football mm -hmm. game ran later, any of those mm -hmm. things pushed it, the slot still re started recording at 9 p.m. on Friday, whether the show had started or not. So there are times you might only get the first half hour. And then on top of that, they didn't count those recordings as watches. So when they were tracking the, uh, the metadata to say how many people are watching this to make decisions to continue it or not, none of those viewers counted in the age where DVRing was king. And so they, they probably didn't even get credit for half of it. And then, I don't know if you know this, um, Fox aired uh, Firefly out of order. 
I yes, I did know that. Um, it's one of the many sins that you know all of the fans will will pull out their book of grievances about what happened to Firefly, and that is definitely pretty high on the list. There, I, I have no idea what they were thinking. My grievance isn't just on Firefly. I have a list of grievances against Fox Entertainment because, I mean, Terra Nova was canceled by them, too. And that was just criminal. Every boy likes dinosaurs. Sorry, just a fact of biology. <laughs> and that was a show with nothing but dinosaurs, and they canceled it. How rude. I'm still bitter. I um, tell. Okay, so, so did you... Th <laughs> <laughs> did you let any of that love of Firefly inspire the world building you did with uh, the Amaranth universe? Am I getting that right? I know it starts with Amaranth, an A. Yeah, I just yes, can't uh, absolutely. Okay. Um, not Firefly specifically. I would say my books tend to be a bit more optimistic, envisioning a slightly better world. I mean, our, the characters okay. run into tons of problems obviously yeah there are difficulties there are challenges there are bad guys there are lots of people that are not good at all um but the core of the the theme of the book is say daring to imagine that humanity will prove to be better than we believe ourselves to be and so I, you know firefly is i I'm not sure that I would call it dystopian exactly, but, you know, like I said, the world that it's in is pretty tough and the characters are, you know, they are scraping by. It is a ragtag group, you know, trying to get one more job to, you know, get the money to eat and that type of thing. And that makes for a great, compelling story to watch and to read in many cases and that type of thing. But that's not really the way that I write personally. I don't mind grittiness, but I can't do grimdark, grimdark because I need mm -hmm. to know, one, I like the, the classic good versus evil trope that gives us something aspirational. Um, I like knowing that there's a light at the end of the tunnel. It doesn't always have to end every book on a, oh my God, that world is sunny and perfect now, because then what do you come back to? But I like knowing that the, tr the arc of the series is at some point something good comes of it and you get sort of a satisfactory ending. I don't like the George R. R. Martin approach of... Um, oh, you like this guy? Let me kill them. Uh, not to say, not to say that characters don't die. I write it that way. I read it that way. But if they die, you don't want the the wash ending where it was like, eh, okay, just random happenstance and they die. Like yeah. if you're gonna make a character die, make yeah. it mean something. I mean, you got secondary characters in the infamous red shirts for the random death. If you're gonna get someone invested in a main character or even a main secondary character and you're gonna kill them, make it mean something. You know, yes. like to me, just personal preference. Because oh, I'm not going to yuck someone else's yum. So if you love Grimdark, more power to you. We'll shop in different aisles, you know, <laughs> when it comes to book buying, right? Like, I, I just, I, I've seen enough of the dark side of the real life. I want, I want better in my fiction. Yes, so. exactly. People read fiction to escape. To, to to find a better world, especially, you know, if people are having trouble in their life and that type of thing, then books provide the escape for, you know, adventures and excitement and a better world than what they're experiencing right now. That's one of the... Absolutely. You know, one of the beauties of books. So you liked Firefly and you liked Star Wars, and both of those are basically spaghetti westerns in space. So were, as a kid, were you a fan of the westerns? The Louis, Louis L'Amour and... You know, the, was it um, Clint Eastwood and all those that made the Westerns back in the day, John Wayne? Not really. You know, my, my father was a big fan of Westerns. And so perhaps I was just rebelling against him. Um, 
because I did do that in a couple of ways and a couple of things that were important to him. Um, so no, I would not say in particular, I did have to watch many of them thanks to him, but I would have preferred to have been, you know, watching Star Trek and uh, Buck Rogers okay. and that type of thing. At least he had good taste. So uh, we are polytheistic here at the Blasters or Blades. Uh, so Game of Thrones, the Wheel of Time or Lord of the Rings? Lord of the Rings. Absolutely. I did. I was an early reader of Game of Thrones back. Uh, I think we picked them up about the time the book three came out, which was about last century. Well, not, not even last century, uh, two centuries ago. It was a hundred years ago. Right. Um, because obviously he is infamous for taking three lifetimes to write a book. But um, picked up, enjoyed the first three, e even as dark as they were. Um, but obviously, they got progressively darker and, and more and more characters, you know, progressively died as you went. And the stretch between the books just got absurd. And, you know, I watched the show, obviously, whenever it came on and that, and that type of thing. And there was a lot of good things about it. But at the end of the day, yeah, I am not a fan of... of the pointless deaths, the, the pointless, the the torture of characters, both literal torture, you know, and emotional and circumstantial torture and that type of thing, just to be cruel, to be cruel. Um, so while I initially enjoyed the first couple of books, I, I my opinion is certainly soured on that a lot. The Will of Time is great. Um, I enjoyed the first season of the TV show on Amazon. Um, I thought they did a Me really too. good job. I'm looking forward for season two. But um, absolutely, Lord of the Rings, the books, the movies, um, the, you know, the well, they're books about hope. I, I mean, again, the characters, you know, they struggle, they, they have enormous hardships um, and the strength that they have to find, you know, to persevere and to rise up again and again and again. It's ultimately rewarded. Um, and I think that is a much better story to tell, more powerful and more compelling. I think it helps that uh, J.R.R. Martin, J.R.R. Tolkien is aspirational in his own right. Um, like I, I don't necessarily, his biography is on my list of things I want to read, you know, in the near future. Um, go get that from the library. Uh, in fact, I'm on the waiting list. Um but just just knowing what I know of World War One history, and that he was at the at the Psalm in the beginning, uh, on the first day, battle where you know I think it was like something like fifty thousand men, and I probably underestimating it. It's a whole crap ton of men um, died in the first day of that battle, and he was there to witness mm -hmm. it. I get why he escaped to fiction. I get why he wanted hope at light at the end of the tunnel. I understand having seen just a fraction of that in the early war in Iraq. I understand yeah, no. why he wanted, you know, modern day Beowulf, essentially, where it was a, a hope at the end of the darkness. Exactly. And how inspiring is that, that he saw some of the worst things that any human being can see, can experience. And yet after that, he chose to write a story of hope and redemption and, and all of that. Yeah. I, I think well, that that's really, really compelling. I took writing as therapy class, the VA offer. They don't offer it anymore, sadly. The lady that taught it, I think she was a professor at William & Mary, but I don't remember what school was. We've got so many colleges in the Hampton Roads area. I don't remember which of the universities she came from, but she she was a local professor. 
unfortunately she was a navy wife well fortunately for him i'm sure uh so when he got stationed she moved and then the class just they nobody no professor took it up but they did a writing as therapy class and that was her first day of that uh session you know as a group therapy thing was her dropping all of the lord of the rings so the the three main in the hobbit all on the table and she's like if he can do it so can you and then she started showing pictures of the psalm from from the first day of the battle those black and whites and she's like so nothing you've seen compares so suck it up and we're getting that was how she started the class yeah and i i think it kind of resonates like when you when you know even you know just a little bit about world war one and that's what you're comparing using this as therapy against it's like oh, i guess what i saw didn't look so bad <laughs> you know that uh what's that you know you don't want to ever be the uh the gunfighter because someone's always going to be quicker paraphrasing john wayne on that one like yeah. you know so for that therapy yeah. class and i've always sort of kept that in the back of the, my, my mind when i write that you know that the hope is, is the end goal because you've already seen the other side of that. So you want something, you want to leave a legacy that's positive, right? Because if you write, like every time your book is in print, you're immortal now, right? I mean, not, I'm not trying to uh, offend anyone's religious sensibilities, but like, I mean, we still talk about Beowulf and how old is that story, right? Like we still talk about Tolkien and he's been dead for what, hundred years? I don't know when he died, but it's been a while, right? Like those people will live on forever because they created something monumental and so if we can scratch the surface of that with our stories how cool yep. is that absolutely so speaking of stories before we uh before we air the commercial so for those that didn't catch your first episode um what would you say was your origin story as a sci-fi nerd as a sci-fi nerd so or, or just so you know not, speculative yeah, fiction no, not, just um, not, what, not what you think it is um or, or what you would think it was going to be I was taking French in ninth grade and had a really quirky, unusual professor. And one of the things he liked to do, he sort of picked out the students who were, you know, uh, it, it, who excelled, you know, who, who were smart, who were engaged, who were doing really well and wanted to provide, um, you know, additional things to get us excited about. And so kind of met with us, you know, what are you into or whatever? And I already kind of liked space. I mean, I, I was, you know, a, a little bit of a space nerd. I like the space shuttle and that type of thing. Um, so I guess I told him that. And he lent me my cop his copy of Cosmos by Carl Sagan. Now, of course, that's okay. that's not fiction. That's science. Um, but I devoured it and was just absolutely in love um i i can believe it changed my world and so then i discovered that 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 carl sagan had written a science fiction book contact so i went and got it and i devoured it and absolutely loved it and then went back to him and was like you know what else can i read and he recommended um the foundation series by Isaac Asimov. so i got that and i devoured that and that was the end of it for me. I was I was a science fiction fan and a space fan also um, from that point on. And whenever I graduated from high school, I intended to be an astrophysicist. Um, in fact, so it, it really did became my world. Uh, I wrote my high school AP English um, thesis on foundation and um, free will versus self determinate versus determinism in the series. Um, my my teacher had no idea what I was talking about. She gave me an A. Uh, so, so that was how I found science fiction. Did he make you read it in French? No, thank goodness, no. 
that would have been so incredibly cruel. Uh, no. My and I've forgotten all of the German I learned in college, but as a, one of our upper level classes, we were not allowed to speak any English in the college uh, class, and our class assignment was reading uh, All Quiet on the Western Front in German. On Westernachnicht, I still remember the name in German. So, and and it was cheating if we referred back to the original because I'd read the uh, original version. I had a kind of idea of the story because we read it in high school, uh, and I'd read it the year before in my English lit class. But man, that was that was a slog. So I, I can't imagine how people that aren't native speakers when they were like, I speak whatever insert language here as my primary language, but I'm reading your story in English. I'm like, hats off to you, brother or sister, because like that's <laughs> that's difficult. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so do you still speak French? Oh, very badly. Um, I actually, I took, yeah. Russian, I took a year of Russian in college. Um, and so actually, so the main character in most of my books, Alex Solovey, um, her father is Russian. And so that's where that came from. Um, yeah, I just want to take something a little different, a little more off the beaten path uh, and that type of thing. Um, I guess this was... Um, you know, after the Berlin Wall fell, after Yeltsin stood on the tank and all of that. So the Russians were our friends now. Um, and uh, and so recently I kind of picked it back up a little bit in Duolingo um, and, and have been trying to get good at it again. I'm not. But, um, you know, you can't really get good at it in 10 minutes a day, I'm afraid. But um, French, you know, I, I remember phrases and that type of thing, but not much. I remember Disui La V because it was the Muzzy the Bear commercial. That was the uh, the Hooked on Phoenix version of teaching you a foreign language that was on all the commercials back in the 80s and early 90s. And I know people, you don't watch commercials anymore, but um, I just remember that commercial. Yes, that's French they're speaking. And no, they're Americans. Um, there's, there was a skill in making a good ad that actually like got people to pay attention and remember it. That's why mm -hmm. jingles were key. Which is why uh, the sci-fi trope of make like a I don't know if anyone else has done it, but have you seen Demolition Man? Yes. With uh, where the jingles, the commercials were actually their music because <laughs> they were listening to old ads as their <laughs> yeah, like entertainment. We had the best. We had the best commercials in the eighties, and we know that they were the best commercials because we all still remember them. We still remember the jingles. We remember the scenes. We remember the commercials. They were memorable. I think because they knew they had to catch, well, I think they knew they had to get your attention partly. And then I also think we paid more attention back then. I, I think technology shortened our attention span. I mean, I know there are a swath of people like, I, I only watch the TikTok shorts or the YouTube shorts. And I'm like, there's all bunch of long form content out there that would blow your mind. Give it a shot. But and it doesn't have to be our podcast. I'm just mean in general. Mm -hmm. But that you know, some people they just they they live their life in those three minute reels at a time, and that's just I don't understand it. Kids these days. And on that <laughs> note, <laughs> we're gonna pause for the moment while we shamelessly shill for the man. The Terran Empire is dead. Long live the Empire. Commander Jared Mertz, the bastard son of the Emperor, and his half sister, Princess Kelsey, barely speak to one another. To their dismay, their father seizes an opportunity to change that and sends them on a dangerous quest to explore the fallen empire. Separated from home by an impassable gulf and struggling to redefine their relationship, they find themselves thrust into a vicious war. Unless they work together to stop the empire's deadly legacy, billions face a horrific fate. 
Empire of Bones, written by Terry Mixon, now available at Amazon.com. All right, so first, before we, well, first off, thank you. Welcome back. Thank you for sticking with us to that commercial interlude. We're still here with GS, the great sci-fi Jensen. Um, I guess they just call you great for short. Is that how that works? Okay. No, uh, they don't. We'll dive into your, youth, your youthful history. No, no. I mean, that was a missed opportunity on your peers' part to, to use was, that for you. But whatever. Um, so thank you for sticking with us through that commercial interlude. So first off, um, is this main series, because I know you haven't been writing for that long, is the uh, this series the, the only one you're writing in, or do you have others? No, this is the, this is the only one, but it's really, at this point, it's more a universe than a series. Um, so I wrote nine books that were, you know, a sequential plot, a trilogy of trilogies, as I put it. Each trilogy has its own self-contained overarching plot, but the characters continue and the underlying story continues through each of the three trilogies. But then I did go to a completely new place, new characters, new species, new location in the universe and wrote a trilogy um, there. And then I actually, I brought the two series together and intermingled the characters as they, you know, face a threat that neither of them can defeat alone and, and that type of thing. And that, and that was a six book series. Um, so it's not all sequential. It's not a one series. It's a universe. And now I'm doing a trilogy of standalone books that involve characters that have been in the previous books, but um, these can totally be read first without having read the first 19. Um, and each one of these three books in the trilogy is going to be that way. They're all going to be standalones um, taking place in different places in the universe and that type of thing. Okay. So do you have anywhere on your website, a suggested reading order? Absolutely. I do. Yes. And at the back of can every you, book as well. You, Okay, if you got it on your website uh, after the show, will you drop me a link to that? And I will include that in the show notes just okay. in case anyone's um, interested. Because okay. if they can read certain ones out of order, I think some of the shorter arcs are generally people are like, oh, I can find this. You know, it's book 12, 13, and 14, but it's a trilogy in and of itself that I don't have to commit to the whole thing. Right. As opposed to the first arc is right. nine books. I think that might be helpful for people that want to dip their toes in the water, so to speak. Sure. And that's where so the new book what would, that big time also. Yeah. So what would the age range be for like, if you were the movie theater rating this series, like on the, you know, G, R, PG-13, all the things, like how would you rate this book? What's your target audience? Well, this new book or the series as a whole? Because the answer is a little different. Okay. So for the series as a whole, okay. I mean, they're made for adults. There's cursing for certain. Um, there is violence, there is sex. Um, so, you know, whatever age of teenager, you know, either their parent or themselves feel like they're ready for that. 16, 17, you know, maybe 15, mature 15 year olds, that type of thing. Um, but they are definitely not YA. They're, they're adult books with adult, they're with adult themes. You know, it's not really, it's not just about the cursing and the sex and whatever. Um, these are complex adult themes. Um, the new book, Medusa Falling, probably runs a little younger. Um, there is cursing, but not as much. There is violence, but it's not as bloody. Um, there is romance, but there's not sex on the page. 
Um, so I, I would probably put it down, you know, a little closer to maybe 13 or 14. When you count the, cause some of the audience actually, um, some of our audience is discerning on what, what level of violence and cursing and sex they want in their books as well. So when you say sex, are we talking brief mechanically this happened or are we talking full on, you know, 50 shades or somewhere in between? How do you, how would <laughs> you classify that? Yeah, it is definitely not 50 shades. It is also not fade to black. It's, um, okay. you know, two to three pages. Standard romance levels. Uh, I'm sorry. So standard romance kind of levels. Yeah. Yes. I mean, it, it's, you know, so sometimes, sometimes it's just, it's pretty brief. Sometimes it's more involved, but it's written romantically. Um, okay. You know, it, it, it's, it's sensual, not sexual kind of thing. Um, and not, that, overly that graphic, not overly graphic in terms of terminology and, and blow by blow or that type of thing. Um, it, it's more in the seduction and then, you know, everybody's happy. Okay. Well, now those that are curious have your answer and we will move on because this is a family friendly episode, even if the books we interview about are all not always. So what would your 30 second elevator pitch first for the universe writ large be? For the universe writ large, Amaranth is character-driven space opera of truly epic scope. Uh, it's a tale of adventure and heroism. It's chock full of evocative locations, inventive technology, and most of all, memorable characters who fight, fail, persevere, and refuse to fade away. Um, these are stories of expansive world building and, like I said, compelling characters with interwoven storylines across multi-book arcs that that really come together and pay off. And they're, um, they're stories that will stick with you long after you, after you close the page that, that have meaning. And also lots of great tech okay. and space battles and aliens, of course. Okay. Now this is just a warning dear listener. If you're, if you're a little bit new to the world of, of peopling, um, when they say elevator pitch, they don't actually mean in a real elevator. I tried that in an elevator at the kid's doctor's office. There was other people in the elevator. Started trying to talk to them about great sci-fi. Not you, but actual books. And, um, yeah, they, they looked at me like I had two heads and like, why are you talking to me? Let me put my earbuds back in. So apparently people don't talk in elevators anymore, just in case you didn't know that. Just throwing that out there. But, so... You know, the universe is is large. So narrowing in our focus to Medusa Falling, whose cover is on the screen if you are watching on Rumble, BitChute, or YouTubes, um, what is the elevator, spit, Pete, the blue, elevator speech for Medusa Falling? How would you sum that up for someone? Sure. A first contact encounter is not supposed to kick off with a dead body. Our main character, Marley Morano, has been dispatched to the planet of Beleria as part of a Concord. Excuse me. Concord is the multi-species empire, I guess you would call it, that um, Amarantha centered on. Um, <clears throat> she's been dispatched to this planet as part of an initiative to meet new species and build alliances with them. But when an assassin murders her counterpart in front of her eyes and takes her hostage, she is plunged into an alien world on the brink of collapse. With no way to contact Quadcord or get off world, her only allies may be a shadowy band of rebels with a questionable agenda steeped in government conspiracies, mysterious genetic experiments, and bloody historical grievances that are threatening to boil over. 
The rightness of their calls is the least of her concerns, though, because she finds herself wanted for murder and hunted by all sides. Hmm. The one-armed man did it. Um, so do you end up this one on a cliffhanger or or do we get resolution on at least no, that murder? you get resolution. This is not only a standalone story, but it is a complete story on its own, on the page. No cliffhangers this time, which is new for me uh, in a lot of ways, I have to say. Um, but I promise, yes. So while you might be a member of the Cliffhangering Bastard Society, today was not the day. That's correct. Okay. Not the, that not is the day. <laughs> so the universe is rather large. And at some point you said you sat down and you spent bazillion hours, like inventing it all in your head, sketching pictures, naming things. So where did the, the kernel of the idea, like, what is the origin story of the world? Like, where did you like say, okay, this is how this all came to be. So I was writing fan fiction for the uh, Mass Effect video game series. That was what got me okay. back into writing hardcore. And, and, and I did a lot of that. Um, and somewhere along the way, once I got good at it, um, cause I wasn't good at it at first. Um, and I got good at it. Um, it started to occur to me that maybe this was something I could, do you know, for real um and so i took the fan fiction beyond the the stories that had taken place in the video games and created an original story um set in that universe came up with original characters told a whole huge arc um and it went really well and the reception was great and everything i was like okay maybe i really can do this but i'm gonna need an original story what do i write um, if anybody knows or has played any of the Mass Effect games, they're very space opera. You, you have a ship and the ship and the crew is the center of the story, but there are a lot of alien species. And because the ship is so important, you go to all of these different alien worlds and you've got an alien menace um, that you have to defeat and that type of thing. Um, and so that was, you know, really you know, where my thinking was and my heart was and everything. So, you know, you sit down, blank page. All right. You need an original story. What are you going to do? And I probably spent a month or two like that. Um, you know, various figments of ideas coming to me and, and discarding them and that type of thing. And then one morning I was in the shower, which is where all great ideas come to be. Um, and this image popped into my head and it was of a woman. She was hanging upside down out of the bay of a spaceship that was in a hangar. And she had these virtual screens circling around her head. She had long, very dark red hair and was in work clothes. It was obvious from the image that she was working on the ship. And I had the sense that this was her ship. And I thought, who is she? When is she in time? And why is she? And how is she going to change the world? And that's how the story started. And that is actually the first scene in Starshine, the very first book also. So. Okay. So have you gone through and like commissioned various art or is the only art that exists aside for your headcanon and the covers? Um, I did commission uh, character models of the two main characters 
And for a long time, they appeared on the covers of my um, collection box sets of the trilogies. That, so the first three trilogies, they were on the covers of all that for a long time. Um, they are not anymore. I have snazzy, more traditional sci-fi space opera covers now. Um, and of course, now with Midjourney and other AI art programs, now I have art of basically all of the characters, um, which has been a lot of fun to do, I have to say. Um, that, that's been really neat. I, I, I wouldn't have commissioned art of all of these characters. I mean, it's, that's a huge expense. I would love to, but it would be very expensive to do just for, you know, for me and for my, of course, my readers would enjoy it and that type of thing. But so it's been nice to be able to do that using Midjourney. What was the time sink and learning curve of the Midjourney for um, you creating these characters? Um, not too bad. Uh, honestly, I, I had help. I saw, I know some people who got really good at it fast. And honestly, I, um, I asked for their, I, I, they did a couple of the characters and gave me the prompts that they used. And I was able to take that and then create better prompts for all of the other characters and that type of thing. So I, I kind of cribbed off things that other, that other people have figured out because it is, it is an art you know, one to do thing a mid journey art prompt. Absolutely. Uh, one thing they teach you at the Army Infantry NCO Academy is uh, if you ain't cheating, you ain't trying. So cribbing <laughs> off someone else, that's yeah. like top top tier right there. We'll make you an honorary yes. sergeant for that. Um, and I, I meant to ask, since you since you were a lawyer, were you a space lawyer, though? Like, did you specialize in space? I wasn't. Yeah. But Tell I me yes, even if I it's not true. In, um, I did specialize in technology companies. That was as close as I could get. Cool. Yeah. There's actually a lady that we interviewed, oh, back in season one, who that's actually space treaties was was her area of legal expertise. I'm sure her and two other lawyers in the world, right? <laughs> but um thought that was kind of cool. I'm like, I didn't mm -hmm. even know that was a thing, but uh I know there are treaties involved with like, you know, not colonizing certain other celestial bodies in our solar system. But I mean we signed those when nobody could. I imagine the first time it's viable, like those treaties go out the window. Yeah, that's. I don't probably, imagine that's gonna probably gonna happen on the moon in in the next couple of years. Um, I mean, we're going, but China is also going, and that's gonna be some interesting times. I, like, I, I don't have a lot of faith in governments to do things. I have faith in some companies. So, in one of the worlds I world build, I wrote a novel in it that the novel flopped, so we moved on. But in that world, like I envisioned the first uh, non-Earth colony was the moon because it's closer. And it wasn't, you know, like great aims of science research. It was the real housewives of the lunar colony was the, uh, and, a, and a reality TV company put it on. <laughs> that was when the, the oh, I guess, early 2000s, when like the real housewives shows were all the rage. Right? I don't even know if they're sure. still on the air, but. So I, I, I think, I think, so I, I've changed covers, by the way, if you're watching or if you're listening okay. or not watching. the uh, If you want to dive into the main arc that she mentioned, book one, that is the cover for that. Um, but I imagine like non, like, you know, sci-fi in Star Trek world, it was all for the greater good. Uh, I suspect human nature being what it is, there's got to be some sort of profit motive. So I try to think of, okay, why else would we get to the stars? It's not really resources because those are mostly you can get them cheaper in an asteroid, right? You, you don't have to break or orbit of a planet. So I try to think of other reasons, and I thought, well, reality TV works. <laughs> I like that. A weird segue. Did you factor in entertainment in your universe? Like, do they still watch movies? Or are they watching AI generated? Like, 
Because now, I mean, if we can do the pictures, I imagine at some point in time, AIs are going to write novels and make movies. Oh, and that's, I mean, I shudder to think that would be an entire other podcast because that whole issue is just taking both the writing world and the art world by storm right now. But we won't go into that. Um, Yeah, I did. I mean, they have um, very extensive virtual reality, you know, as real as the real thing. Uh, effectively. And that's mentioned several times in the first couple of books. It's not a major plot point, but it's there in the background. It comes up and that type of thing. Um, there, um, When aliens attack one of the planets and one of the character, two of the characters get trapped there and, and are trying to get their way off, one of the characters, one of them um, observes that um, that all of the um, all of the filmmakers, uh, you know, of the last 200 years said, you know, as, as humanity expanded out into the stars, you know, they, they made all of these films, of course, about alien invasions and what we would find and all that kind of stuff. And, and now walking on a planet that has actually been invaded by aliens, she was like, they had no imagination. <laughs> but, you know, all, all of those movies were crap. They had no idea what this was actually going to be like. So. And we, yeah, have music, we have they have music, of course. Still, there, there's a minor character who's a musician. Um, it's a little different. It tends to be more synth and, and that type of thing. But they still play instruments as well. That's the one thing that I never understood, and I get why they do it for copyright reasons and, and all of that. But if in 300 years in the future, the the highlight of someone's entertainment is still reading William Shakespeare, and nothing against the Bard, I love it. I read it. I've read them all. But I have to think technology or technology entertainment will have progressed past that point, hopefully. So it's going to be interesting. I, I'd almost like the idea, it's going to sound janky, but like Home Alone where they made uh, the little TV vignettes that they showed that he played were made just for that. That's not an actual movie. Um, mm-hmm. Like I almost want somebody when they're making their world just to make scenes from various you know, books that haven't happened yet that people can reply or, you know, respond to as cultural touchstones. Um, because, I mean, come on, like, everything is 80s pop or or Shakespeare when they talk about, like, entertainment in their worlds. And, and you would think that they've moved past that 300 years from now. So I do think you, that we, do have, you, like, we have difficulty imagining what that's going to be, though. So we fall back to what we know. I think it's one, it's, it's what the reader knows, but I think there are ways you could probably get away with going around that. And then I think the other part of that is legitimately like they're grabbing things that are one, not their own work. And two, because that would feel like, you know, whatever. And then they're grabbing things in the public domain, which means it has to be old, right? I think it's what 90 years after the author dies is what makes it. So I think we're up to the what 1930s is public domain. I don't know. I don't know exactly how it works. So they keep changing it. Every time the mouse wants to redo it, they'd redo it for some reason um, or, or, or lost. But anyway, um, one idea, you mentioned virtual reality was some in your world. Um, I think one author that did it right, uh, have you heard of Joe Vasicek? He writes uh, sta- space opera sci-fi. Yes. Mm-hmm. So he did one where they had like some sort of jack in the back of their head, a la Matrix style, but... Um, he actually, I think he started writing, well, no, Matrix was 99. Anyway, where they would jack into a virtual world to uh, entertain themselves while they were traveling the stars because there was no, like, um, they traveled on space lanes. So, like, it was making uh, the, the long, you know, 
drawn out nothingness parts so you don't go insane. Mm -hmm. uh, I think um, Hugh was it who wrote Wool? Um, that Without author has posited what yeah Hugh Howie he's posited in a few of his works what space travel might do to your psyche. And I think this uh, Joe Vasicek's answer was, well, we'll just stick them in a video game, essentially, where they can play and do whatever. Yeah. Do you address that yeah. when, when you write your own series? Do you have, like, if she's doing, in the beginning, doing a lot of flying around out by herself, like, how is she staying sane if it's just her and her ship? Yeah. Well, in part, because they have really fast FDL drives. So it doesn't take that long to get okay. anywhere. Um, so I kind of sidestep that in that respect honestly. Um, but then, yes, then they have the, you know, very immersive virtual reality tools, you know, that you can absolutely do that. Um, you know, I, I think Star Trek, you know, everybody, you know, loves to both loves the holodecks and loves to bash on the holodecks, but it's probably going to be not that dissimilar from that. Maybe you don't walk into a room and, you know, it, the fake world encompasses you, you know, maybe it's still something you put on your head, on your eyes, or it's something that's built in, you know, b beneath our skin or, or that type of thing. Um, but that will immerse us in a virtual world. That's going to be here soon. So it's certainly going to be here in 300 years. They're going to have that. Um, I think everyone that's ever been a teenager. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. I say, I think anyone who's ever, anyone who's ever been a hormonal teenager knows exactly how those uh, hollow deck type devices are going to be used and abused. Yeah. yeah. Um, ha have you seen the Orville, the first episode yes. of that mm -hmm. series before they went behind a paywall where the, the secondary, one of the secondary characters uh, was in the hollow deck fighting a troll in samurai armor. Like that's, that's going to yes. be more realistic of what people are doing with it. Oh yes, absolutely. <laughs> so, you said you sidestepped it by having them just drive really fast. Do you get into the science? Like, did you explain your FTL drive or does it just exist? Oh, no, it's, um, it's actually based on, you know, one of the leading and most plausible theories today. Uh, um, warp bubble, uh, Miguel Alcubier is the primary person behind this. Though others, other scientists have refined his ideas in the years since. Um, and in fact, in the last, couple of years, there have been scientists that have greatly reduced the energy requirements for this type of drive. Um, and also, so it relies on exotic matter, which so far as we know right now doesn't exist, but there are those that are coming up with ways that we could maybe create it without using exotic matter and that type of thing. I mean, so the technology, it's not real yet, but it's plausible. And it was important for me to have my technology be plausible extensions of things that are at least theoretically possible as we understand science today. So. Did you throw the word quantum in there a few times? Cause you're not a real sci-fi writer. I'm told if you don't use. Quantum oh my goodness. I am. Um, yes. <laughs> yes. I use the word <laughs> a bit too much. I'm afraid. And even and more so as we go through the series, um, as humanity comes to understand more about the quantum realm and ways that they can put it to use. So, yeah. So when you do your FTL travel, because, you know, we're looking at the pictures of your spaceships on the covers, do you have them um, sort of just be always like we're traveling, you see everything going really, really fast, but that's about the extent of it all of Star Trek. Do you take some of the universes where you're almost in an alternate dimension when you're FTL travel and then you hop out almost like the a wormhole to a different place to cut space time 
like do you do you delve into all of that when you're when you're writing in this world i um i reference the fact that this basically the stars blur away outside um it, it's not unlike what you see in star wars um you know you zoom in and the stars go whoosh um it's not quite that like i said it's more of a blurring effect but because you literally are creating a bubble around the ship that works space around it um <clears throat> so no whenever you're doing it you can't see out to the stars and the nebula and the planets and all of that so the one thing that Star Trek always got me with is the idea of some people, oh, there are windows in space on your spaceships mm-hmm. versus is it just a projection screen? Right. Uh, I've heard both arguments. Um, they did both in Star Trek and the various whatever. So what are your thoughts on windows on your spaceship? I started out with windows on the spaceships. If I could go back, I'm not sure I would do it that way. I would probably go projections from the beginning. Um and I moved towards projections um, in particular because late um, w- one of the alien enemies that they are fighting has ways that they're basically shape-shifting metal. And so they can get in ships. And so oh. the good guys have to create basically ships that have no seams. Um, and, and so that becomes, you know, a, a big plot point actually. And, so, you know, if you're not going to have seams, you really can't have windows either. And so they're using projections at that point. And, and I think that is probably the way that you actually go. Um, it's, I mean, it's a weakness anywhere that you're combined, that you're putting two different kinds of material up against each other, as you would from the metal of the hole and the glass from the, uh, for the viewports. Um, so I think they would probably do away with those. I think the, um, I think Star Trek, wasn't it like clear metal that they were going through? It wasn't actual glass, but yeah. So how do you, how did you solve the no seams thing? Because I'm just trying to, you you can't build a spaceship in one piece. And if it's not one solid piece, you've got joints, seams, whatever. So uh, just having grown up around ships, right? Like actual naval ships. I worked in the shipyard partly to pay for my college degree. How did you address that? Because it's boggling my mind right now. Yeah. Um, well, they actually they had a had invented a metal um, that it's not shape shifting. It's not like the aliens that was sentience, you know, shape shifting metal. But it um, w- well, for one thing, it could repair itself, and so it was very flexible and malleable and um, conducive to electrical signals and that type of thing. So you end up with fibers running through the metal whenever the ship is built. And it can send signals that would cause the metal to melt, it seems, and reform as a solid form. And later, when they needed the seams again, like for a door to open, could signal it um, to to break apart and recreate the seam. Okay. I mean, I guess if it can heal itself, then much like when bones break and they heal back stronger, your joints then become strong points in your skeleton, but that's still a seam if the thing can go through it. So, okay, I'll I'll buy it. That sounds interesting. So what can you tell us about the aliens um, that uh, for this first contact story without spoilers, obviously? Sure. So that's, you know, the concept between the, so Cosmic Shores is the name of the trilogy of standalone books that I'm doing here. And the overarching concept 
for them is you take one of the characters from the universe and you put them outside of Concord's safe borders and, and you know that that fallback position and everything. You put them out there, cut off from all of their resources, and you know they have to survive, get back home, you know all, all of that type of stuff. So in this case, Marley ends up on, on an alien world. She's taken hostage. Um, they are able to prevent her from from contacting home or or any of that, and so she is stuck there. And so this is really a true first contact alien immersion story. So much of the book is about these aliens and their world as she learns about it. You know, we see it through her eyes as she at first doesn't know much at all and gradually begins to understand the world, the culture, its history, and these terrible troubles and problems that they are having. Um and, and the crisis that the planet finds themselves in. So the aliens are called Belliscotians. They are humanoid. Um, they have, um, they call it lamellar skin. They don't have scales exactly, but their skin is textured and it almost looks like it has scales, um, somewhat iridescent. Um, they have a tail that is very dexterous, almost as good as having a third hand and that type of thing. Um, and one of the interesting things about them is amongst family or people they choose to designate as family. Um, they are able to sense one another's emotions, sentiments, and really even thoughts. And so that has created a culture in which families are, well, they're the center of the culture. They're very, very important to the Belliscotians. And so they live in these huge family pods, you know, basically their aunts and uncles and cousins and third cousins removes and all, and all of that all kind of grow up together. And amongst them, like I said, nothing is hidden. They are extremely close due to this almost telepathic connection that they have. Um, and um, part of the premise, of, you know, the conflict in the story is due to some genetic experiments 20 or so years ago, some small portion of the, um, of the Belliscotians developed the ability to extend this te telepathy outside their families to everyone. And so suddenly you have these mind readers and it is completely disrupting their society and the government is trying to hide it and put them down and they imprison them and spread lies about them and all that type of thing. And then you've got groups that are fighting against that, trying to expose the truth and that type of thing. They are technologically advanced Probably I'd put them about 50 years ahead of we act, of where we are in our in our own reality. Um, they've got, you know, a couple of lunar bases, colonies that people live on, and, and they've got um, little colonies orbiting their gas giants and that type of thing. They go to space a lot. They don't have FTL drives. They haven't discovered that or artificial gravity or that type of thing. So from Concord's perspective, they're still pretty primitive but they are now a spacefaring species, at least. Uh, they, they are making the strides that we will hopefully be making soon. Okay. So when you write this, you know, taking yourself out of the author space and thinking just as a, the average person, when you wrote about the telepathic society, because they did that in Star Trek too, and she's the most annoying creature in the entire franchise, Diana Troy. But... Um, <laughs> Did did the whole concept of the telepathic connection and the lack of privacy and all that freak you out a little bit when you were conceptualizing it? Yeah, 
Um, and and it's actually it's a point that's made in the book a couple of times. Marley, you know, and obviously talking about her culture, her culture versus their culture with the characters that she meets. You know, she's like humans are very individualistic, and our privacy is one of the most important things, you know, to us. Um, we're basically the, the polar opposite of what you're doing, and of course they struggle to understand that because this is everything that they know, and and they view her as she must be a very lonely, solitary, you know, creature to live so alone, only in her own head. And she's like, no, it's not like that at all. You know, we value it. You know, that's how I want it to be. Um, and there are some other character reasons why this really worked for her in particular. Um, but uh, I'll need to go into that. But that is part of the story as well. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think we as humans are naturally afraid of that type of thing. The notion that someone else could know what we were thinking, you know, all the time, even if, even when we didn't want them to, that there'd be no way to shut that type of thing out. Yeah. I think that's kind of terrifying for us. Yeah. I don't know. Having lived in communal environments in the army, like the, I, the privacy is something I value greatly now that I can. So the idea of having people in my head, I'm like, I don't know if you want to go in there. You might not like what you find. No. Um, so how clear is their tele the, the telepathy, telepathic uh, skill? Is it just feelings and emotions and general sense of well-being or down to like, oh, he's remembering that? Hmm. Um, the closer the relationship between the characters, the stronger it is. So two of the main characters are twins, twin siblings. And they can read each other's thoughts straight on. Um, there, there is nothing hidden from them. Um, when you get out to people, cousins, and people who aren't actually blood relation, but have been sort of adopted into the family, which is the thing that they do, then it's really more sentiments and, and emotions more so than I am sending you, you know, the, this, this is the direct thought that I am sending to you. And it's a paragraph of, you know, exactly what I want to say. Do you have a delineation in your head when you're you're creating these links where the line between telepathic and empathic merge and meld from one into the other? I think that's a good question um, because in a lot of ways, um, Marley sees sees it as empathy more than tele telepathy because I see so they can't read her mind because she's not Bella Scotian. Um, there's just none of the biology to do it. But one of the characters that has had this genetic mutation, which has really strengthened this telepathic ability so much, is able to read her, the at least vaguely, her sentiments and, and emotions. And so from Marley's perspective, it looks like she's an empath rather than telepath. And that's really how that relationship is. Okay. Okay. So you've mentioned that you're world building a little bit on the um, OCD level of extra. We'll just call it extra when you oh, were yeah. first started writing. Um, so how did you go about creating these fantastical alien creatures and places? Did you create it all out of whole cloth? Did you let Mother Nature inspire you? Did you pull out the D&D, &D, you know, monster manual? Um, <laughs> you stole my answer. My, my, my pithy okay, answer to the on. question is always D&D &D monster manuals. Um, <laughs> And I actually did you roll dice to get the page number? No, I have a four volume um, 
series and it's um it's not actually D D, it is but it is space aliens but it is very much modeled on the on the D D model of monster manuals um and i have certainly flipped through that and gotten lots of ideas i've never taken one whole cloth oh i'm gonna make this alien uh, you know i'll take different characteristics from different ones but um but yeah i'm not ashamed to say that i have done that you know obviously video games as well you know there have been so many aliens imagined in video games and our movies and everything. You know, I've been consuming science fiction media for, a, I won't say all time, for a very, very long time. And it, I've just sort of absorbed it all. So it's all in my head getting mixed and matched all the time. Okay. So when you describe your aliens, you know, Star Trek was famous for their, their forehead ridge of the week because Budgets were a thing. Technology back then was a sure. thing. When you do science fiction in the, the print or the visual medium, you have a lot more options because you don't have to hire an actor that's only three foot tall and has an extra arm because as far as I know, those don't exist. Um, so how do you go about designing the aesthetics? Do you keep them all sort of vaguely humanoid or are you all over the place? Some of both. Um, so at uh, uh, theory in that the characters have in the books is that sort of humanoid you know, arms legs a torso with a head on top eyes and ears of some kind is nature's preferred and the nature returns to it again and again and so most of the aliens are humanoid ish um but that's that. Even that leaves a lot of variety. Yeah, we've got Cote, which are large, well, almost lion-ish aliens. It's that they walk on, on two legs, and they have these really strong, thick tails. They have four eyes and these long snouts with all these teeth. They they look very terrifying. They're not. I mean, they are a, an aggressive, warlike species, but they're not that terrifying. But um, so that's humanoid. But that's a whole. That's a long way from humans. Um. And, but then, so yeah, I would say probably half to two thirds of my species fall in that basic rubric of arms, legs, torso, head type of thing. Um, but not all of them. Um, we have ethereal aliens that are wispy and can fly, run around all around the universe. Um, got a sort of dolphin analog as a cross between a dolphin and a manta ray who are sentient. Um, We've got uh, sort of tree people. And of course, then we have the metal shapeshifters, which are very different. Um, sentient planet, obviously. Um, I've got uh, um, two flying species. One, which a falcon is probably the closest. So we're kind of talking birds, but they're not quite falcons either. Um, and then a taller, um, gosh, what was the, do you ever see the movie Mimic? about 20 or 30 years ago. Um, it was a horror movie, but it had these creatures that were like moths, but they were human sized. And so right. these aliens are kind of like that. They, they fly, they have wings, um, but they also have arms and legs uh, and they are human sized and, and have very bird-like um, facial characteristics and that type of thing. Um, we've got uh, blobs, there, there are some iridescent blobs that break apart and come back together and that type of thing. And they're one of the more 
unusual and unknowable species. They are sentient and they take place in Concord, but nobody's ever really been able to figure out exactly what their deal is. So yeah, I've tried to, I'm very cognizant of the Star Trek pointy ears phenomenon. And I've tried very hard not to have, you know, all my aliens just be humans with pointy ears or ridges on their forehead. Um, so I've tried to do a lot of- Or strange dots things. on their face. Exactly, exactly, yes. So I've tried to do a lot of different things, but within the humanoid framework, and then also have some that are well outside of it. Did you uh, buy into the requirement for advanced tech as opposable thumbs so that way you can do the manipulation of things to build? Because obviously if you're building an if you're building an alien species, at some point in time, they didn't start off you know, where we are today with all the technology, they had to build up to it on their version like we did through evolution, et cetera. And so the, the premise is you would need opposable digits to be able to do the grip, to do the fine manipulation. Um, I've seen some authors get around it, but like, well, they can control metal by building it with their, like moving it with their mind kind of thing. Yeah. But but I, I still think at some point you still need hands to grip. To do yes, a lot of things. It's a logical thing. And so, so that's why I saw, like the uh, the falcon type aliens, one way in which they are different is they their claws are a little closer to hands. They have a opposable right. thumbs, they have enough of ability to grip that they can manipulate objects and that type of thing. Um, and in fact, in Medusa Falling, that comes up because Marley, as she's trying, she's learning about the Belliscotian technology and trying to understand it so she can use it and that type of thing. That um, that if you have a humanoid form and if you have finger digits and that type of thing, then that leads everybody along similar lines of technological development. They build the same things. Their their society develops in similar ways um, because that just leads to a natural way of interacting with our environment. Okay, so. We don't really have the formula anymore, people. We're doing a little bit more free following, other than the religion question, because that's just that's just us. Um, but but we do like you know to keep it on track. So we'd like you to weigh in. We recorded this way in advance so we could launch this on her sale date. Because as you're listening to this, the uh, Medusa falling is on sale for how much? Ninety nine cents. So it's a steal of a deal. You'd be stupid to pass it up. Uh, how long is the novel? Uh, it is eighty seven thousand words which is the shortest book I have ever written by several thousand. Um, my books, most of my books, not all of them, but most of them are, are big. They're, they're, they're meaty. And that was something else that I'm doing deliberately here. I wanted to do a couple of books that are shorter. They're tight. They're fast paced. They're fun. They're adventurous. They're, you know, exit an easy, fun read. So that's what uh, free Kindle readers and paperback readers, that's 175 pages-ish. And the ish is doing a lot of heavy lifting, as I like to say. Um, but it's roughly, what, 500 words a page. So um, that's actually not too bad for a novel. Um, that used to be long, even, you know, in the pulp era, until yeah. Sanderson and George R.R. Mar uh, R. R. Martin and, and J.R.R. Tolkien, they, like, decided they had to write, like, kill you if it landed on your foot kind of books yes. and everyone else thought they had to follow suit. Yes. Uh, I actually don't mind that. That's, that feels like a good pace to me long enough to make an audiobook worth it. If there is one, but not so long, you have to, you know, give up three weeks of your life to listen to it. Right. So is this available in, uh, in audiobook or right now just ebook and print? 
It probably the audiobook will probably not be available when this airs. That will probably be September, but it absolutely will be an audiobook. Yes, I have an incredible narrator. She has narrated all of my books. I don't know what I will do if she ever fires me. She is amazing. And so yeah, I, I would expect that to be ready in September. But okay. it will be it and, is uh, an yeah, I'm sorry. No, it's an ebook. It's on all the retailers. It's not just on Amazon. And it is also available in paperback and hardback. So if you buy the ebook on the sale, which is going to be from August 14th, I think you said through the 25th? Yeah, 14th through the 25th, yes. If you buy it at the 99 cents, and then when the audiobook comes back and launch, you will still be able to do the Kindle pairing. You will still be able to buy the audiobook. If you go through the Amazon, not Audible, you will still be able to get the reduced price to pair them together. Um, so that that's a thing, mm -hmm. um, and uh, it should it should work for you. Um, if not, um, Amazon customer service is pretty good about working with you if you're having problems. Um, so yeah, that's that's a thing. Uh, I mentioned that we're recording this in advance because this is the first interview where we've actually talked to an author about the books where we just threw the script out and we just had a free flowing conversation. So for feel free to throw some criticism my way if you thought you know it was herky jerky and all over the place. I mean that's how my brain works without a script. That's that's TBI brain for you people. It's a dark and dreary place in here. Um, but yeah, any crit criticisms you have or critiques, we're we're all for it. So shoot us a message. You know, join us on the Facebook page, comment there, comment on BitChute, Rumble, YouTube, uh, podcast platform, all the places we are, you can talk to us and we, we will let you do that. With that being said, um, where do you see this uh, Amaranth universe ending? Right now, this is the 20th book in the world you've written. What's next? Yeah. So <clears throat> I just finished a huge six book plot arc series called Riven Worlds. Um <clears throat> And that that was that was some big heavy stuff. Um, that was not the end though. So now I'm doing this trilogy of standalone fun adventure novels, and then I am gonna do a couple of prequel short stories, novelette type length. It may actually end up all being in one book, a sort of collected stories of the history of Amaranth kind of thing. And then I have another big trilogy planned which is sort of foreshadowed at the end of Riven Worlds. Um, basically, there is one more threat out there, one, one you know, more threat on the horizon that they know about. They know it's coming. They don't know when it's coming or what it's going to be like. Um, and so every, all of my readers are expecting, you know, they, they've been expecting for a while, you know, when are these guys going to show up? We know they're going to show up. So they're going to show up. And so that'll be a return to the big epic space opera, multiple points of view, interwoven storylines type of thing. Um, and that will be a trilogy. And that will have a big bang up conclusion. And that, so, you know, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, 26 books. That will conclude the sort of most overarching meta meta story arc that I've always had in mind for this universe. Um, that will bring it into that. That is not the same as saying that it's the end for the, for the characters or, you know, I, given what we talked about early on, I don't think anybody thinks that I'm going to kill everybody at the end. That's just not my style. So it's not the end for the characters or the universe or that type of thing. But after that, I may truly go off and write some new, completely new things, new characters outside of Amaranth, totally new thing 
probably will then eventually come back here as well and write new stories involving some of these characters and, and that type of thing. Um, but really everything is open for me after the end of that trilogy. Okay. If you were writing a new world and you were starting today, we'll say, you know, you blinked, you slapped, you dictated the hell out of it. And all of those books were written six more books overnight. And you were starting this new universe. Are you going to go as crazy on the world building? Or are you going to take it as you come? <laughs> um, I've learned a lot, obviously, in writing 20 books. And so I know I will probably not give names to 100 planets next time um, and place them on the map. I had a real, you know, a NASA map of the Milky Way. And I put every one of those hundred colonies on the map. Um, and that mattered for how long it took people to get places and that type of thing. Um, so probably not that much. I, I am a total plotter, but a little pantsing has gotten in as I've gotten more experience with this. So, but at the same time, starting an entirely new world where I have to make up everything from scratch. Yeah. I'm going to do a lot of world building. I'm going to need to know where this tech, why this technology developed this way. And, you know, where, where it all is, what they have, what they don't, what the history of the world is, what events led to the situation of the society whenever we meet it and all of that. Yeah. When I first wrote my first series, now keep in mind, I write, um, well, at least until lately, I've wrote almost exclusively military, military science fiction. And so they had this military unit. I had the entire battalion with a name for each character, what their position was in the unit, what they're like, what they carried. Cause there is some, some formula involved in, in the organization structure as individual characters died because I said, Oh, well, you know, we wiped out this squad or, you know, I just know three people died and he didn't have to know their name, the main character, Lance Scipio, but I did. And so I would like, Oh, deceased that. And then I would redo the, the, you know, from this point forward, I would redo the TONE, the table of organization and equipment. And then I would promote people. So there was a whole career progression. Like how oh, this guy started as a PFC and he didn't even get promoted until Bob died. And I was like, I don't know who the hell Bob was. You never wrote about Bob, you know? <laughs> <laughs> right. So you could definitely, and I thought about how many wasted man hours I spent just looking at name generators and I'm like, mm -hmm. yeah, you could overdo it, but it was fun in the beginning to do yeah, that kind absolutely. of stuff. Like just, just make it you know, real. And, and you're right. You need to know, even if the reader doesn't need to know. But yeah, I think at this point I have the same organization because, you know, militaries are organized in formula that exists for a reason. Once you figure out the formula, all I need to know is to slot in a name as I actually name somebody, but they stay John Doe until they need a name. <laughs> <laughs> so I think I'd probably do that with planets if I was you too. So how do you, how do you come up with names for planets? What did you, what was your formula? Did you have one? Um, I went a lot of different places. I use Latin and Greek a lot. I use history, um, you know, place locations um, from back in, in, in the Greek, the Roman Empire, the Greek Empire, all of that. Um, I use our planet uh, because obviously, I, I mean, you know, you see this in sci-fi shows all the time. You know, they they go out there and, and they set a little planet and they call it New New York, um, you know, <laughs> or New Montana, and, and that's going to happen. Um, so I also I look and there'll at, be like a hundred of them. <laughs> right. <laughs> Even newer New York um, and that type of thing. But I so like but I tried to spread it around. So a couple of planets that were settled by the Chinese and the Japanese. And so I looked at their history and tried to find, you know, important historical figures or locations or that type of thing. What would they name a planet that they settled um, and that type of thing? So 
you really put, you know, some of them are you're pulled from religious text um, under the theory that planets would be settled by a lot of different people and cultures and nations. Um, so they are really all over the place that way. Okay. But did you go full expanse and get space Mormons? Because I think that's like a requirement to have. I, I, I don't have space Mormons, but, um, but I do have space hippies. Nice, the, nice. I first, think the uh, <laughs> the first planet that mice. the first aliens invade is, is a planet that has been settled by space hippies, um, and it nice. is a little bit. They are a little bit caricaturish. You know, a character is doing yoga while levitating above the palm fronds um, because the, the planet has this effect. Yeah, magnetic is naturally magnetic, and so they can levitate a little bit and all that. And they are total space hippies. Um, and a, a lot of readers may made some funny jokes about that that the first thing i did was i killed all the space hippies i mean i get it i, I like that though <laughs> that's good um i think the closest i came is i had the uh the amish in space which you know because if you know that they don't like technology was part of why it was in my farcical sci-fi but space comedy is just too hard to write uh, apparently, my humor is better suited for a gutter than for uh, for fine dining <laughs> establishments. So it was an acquired taste, and I was one and out when it comes to space comedy. But uh, but yeah, I always thought that was funny, like how you mesh real cultures into your science fiction without being a caricature or un mm -hmm. offensive in a way that doesn't serve the plot. So I thought that was kind of interesting. All right. Well, we've been rambling for an hour and a half. And as much as I'm having fun with this new format, I have to have some benchmark to shut myself up. So I do watch the clock, people. Um, but before we let you go, uh, Miss Great Sci-Fi Jensen, can you tell listeners and viewers how they can find you on the Wild Wild Interwebs? And we'll link that Absolutely. all in the show notes. It is so easy. My website is gsjensen.com. And I am GS Jensen everywhere. Uh, Facebook and Twitter are where I am most active on social media and I am GS Jensen on both of them, but I am also on Instagram and Pinterest and Tumblr. And now I am also on Mastodon and threads. So if, if you are chasing the next social media platform, I'm there too. Um, it's GS Jensen everywhere. You are way ahead of the curve. So uh, you can find us a dear listener uh, on our link tree, which will be linked to the show notes, which is, Linktree backslash Blasters and Blades podcast, where uh, YouTube does not like us to link to BitChute and Rumble. But after five years of podcasting, I decided, you know, maybe YouTube is not the only place I should put my videos. So we we did this great sync uh, of, of the channel. So now all 279 episodes are over on Rumble. Um, BitChute only got the the newest ones. And I we, we're not at a place where we're back enough to pay for the extra storage for our long-form um, back catalog but so follow us on the link tree you can get to our rumble or our bit shoot we are over on twitter at twitter.com backslash sf underscore fantasy underscore show sierra foxtrot underscore fantasy underscore show you can email us at blasters and blades podcast at gmail.com again blasters and blades podcast at gmail.com i swear i answer that thing at least once a week i promise so uh so if you want to reach out that is a viable option we have a Facebook group where all the shenanigans happen over at facebook.com backslash groups backslash blasters and blades podcast. Again, backslash groups backslash blasters and blades podcast. We do have a Facebook page. Once uh, Saskia gets done doing her dragon con 
pre-convention stuff because um, we're recording this in July and this is the big you know, push for all the directors to do their thing. She takes every July off. So no, she wasn't fired for everyone sending me the letters. She had to take time to do the, the thing that, you know, she ob obligated herself to. So she's still involved in the, the Facebook group. So if you want to talk to her, sometimes she even answers us um, when she's allowed to sleep. I, I understand the Dragon Con overlords. They're like cracking the whip and like, you got to turn in stuff and I don't know what that's all about. Well, it seems I, a little excessive I need, to I me. Need my, yes, I need my schedule for Dragon Con. So uh, if I could crack the whip on them, I would. So, uh, Yeah, I, I get it. So, But anyway, so that's where she's been. She'll be back. Uh, we're actually doing, well, you would have heard it already, but uh, we haven't recorded it as of yet. And she will be back for our episode where we're talking about dragons um, because, you know, she, she has an affinity for I still think wolves are cooler than dragons, but that's just me. Ooh, does your world have dragons in it? Yes, actually, it does. <laughs> nice. I it, dig it. it. All right. That's cool there, points there, for you. Uh, yes. I and like it. I fact, like it. Are they sentient or are they? They're, they're not fully sentient. They're, I mean, they're smart, for, but okay. they are beasts. Um, and Marley is actually a huge fan of the dragons. And um, by the time Medusa falling happens, she has befriended one of them. She is closer to the dragons than most characters in the books are. So there you go. One more reason to read it. Does she ride? Does she ride them? If, uh, literally, that happens in book nineteen. But yes. Does she? Does she call the planet Pern? No. Because you didn't want to get sued. I get it. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there, there's homage, and then there's yeah. So. At least you could defend yourself. That's a lot better than most authors would get. Although they do say that's a fool for a client at that point. But all right. You can also find us on our website at anchor.fm backslash blasters tack and tack blades. Again, anchor.fm backslash blasters dash and dash blades. Whereas for as little as 99 cents a month, you can help keep the lights on. Uh, when we can get enough reoccurring pledges, we will back the um, bit shoot in the way they require to get the larger uploads. So we can start adding our back catalog over there. But uh, in the meantime, we did sync it to the YouTube. So all of you bit shoot users, you get the newer episodes, but uh, until then, we got to episode four, and episode five was too big uh, of a file. Uh, Doc Spears likes to talk. Not that I'm complaining. Uh, if you want to support the show more directly, you can support us over at buymeacoffee.com backslash author J.R. Hanley. Again, buymeacoffee.com backslash author J.R. Hanley. Be sure to put in the comment section this for the podcast, and I promise I will keep my co-hosts, Doc Seska and Nick Garber, duly caffeinated. They will drink until the gold stuff comes out of their eyeballs because coffee is liquid gold, people. Liquid gold. Yep. All right. How do you take your coffee before we bring this home? Black. Ooh, I, I, my dad always said when I grew up, I'd drink it black. But for now, it's French vanilla creamer. That's the way to go. All right. Thank you for spending some of your precious time with us. For Nick Garber and Doc Saska, I am J.R. Hanley, and this was the Blasters and Blades podcast. We'll be back next week at the same time where we'll indulge our love. Nerd culture, cheesy jokes, and all things that go boom. Thank you for sticking with us, and thank you for coming back on, um, Jensen. It was a great interview. Thank you. Absolutely. I appreciate it very much. Had a lot of fun.